like to introduce David Maynor, and he's going to give a presentation on architecture flaws in common security tools. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. My name is David Maynor, and I'm from a company called Internet Security Systems. I'm I'm a member of the Internet Security Systems X-Force, the research and development arm of our organization. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to apologize for my informal dress. A can of Coke ended the, uh, the clothes I was planning on wearing. Also, Mr. Rob Glenn, the chief scientist of ISS, was supposed to attend with me and uh, unfortunately could not due to a scheduling conflict. So my talk is about architecture flaws and common security tools, uh, such as network IPS and whole space IPS tools. Although I am from a vendor that creates uh, these types of devices as well, this is not going to be a vendor bias demo. And my goal here is to impart to you the knowledge to test these applications yourself. So why do you want to look at security tools? Security tools in general are often the most exposed part of an environment. Malware and underground exploit developers are becoming better at exploit development. Without proper testing, it's hard to tell whether your security vendor is keeping pace with uh, the exploit writers. With minor modifications, most exploits can actually be tooled to evade uh, most major security tools. This is commonly known in the underground, but has yet to really make an impact into the, a corporate environment. So basic techniques. Most security tools rely on a common garden variety um, ability to detect uh, attacks. This includes the snort strategy of doing pattern matching or other vendor variety of partial or full protocol analysis. Unless a security tool fully understands the protocol that's being dealt with, it's easy to evade it by using simple protocol features like fragmentation or sending out of order packets. That's for the network side. The host side, uh, host space IPS tools, although the, they're billed as attempting to stop the actual attack, 
in reality, they are only able to stop the shell code or the attack payload portion. This protection is done by uh, attempting to hook useful functions. And depending on how these hooks are placed, whether they're in the user land portion of memory or the kernel portion of memory, they're easily available. So now we're going to, we're going to discuss uh, a couple of flaws in network product architecture. TCP is more of a string-based protocol, meaning that in actuality, there's no division between uh, the packets to the application. Packet boundaries have been implemented for uh, uh, different security tools. Can you speak to the microphone? Say again? Through that microphone? Test. 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 Yeah. Must have got turned off, sorry. So, uh, packet, uh, partially is done on a packet level because that was initially the best way for it to be done. So in order to efficiently determine how an application will view network data, a security tool should be able to understand the application layer and not just the network layer of the attack. So one of the oldest security devices known are firewalls. Uh, firewalls inspect each packet as they come in, and generally how they work is they assign each packet to a flow. This flow is how the firewall will keep state for that connection. The flow can either be allowed, blocked, or specific actions uh, handled on the uh, flow. In order to deal with the problem of dynamic applica or applications open dynamic ports, stateful inspection firewalls ha have been designed to open temporary ports for certain applications. Applications were like uh, FTP and voice over IP. So th this is an example of, of an FTP service. And as uh, the passive uh, function of the, the protocol allows different ports to be open than the generic uh, form of the protocol. In, in addition, uh, FTP is a very chatty protocol, so it can help us by returning uh, useful errors into what they're doing. Um, there are several attacks in FTP. 
that specific uh, tools are looking for specific patterns of, uh, of how things work. By doing things like, um, and maybe in the passive mode, I can actually change the, the standard behavior of the protocol. So it will be harder for a, a generic pattern matching algorithm to detect it. Why, why, uh, why, why, um, why firewalls is confused by the attack uh, being spread over multiple packets instead of one? Is in general most security tools will look at a single packet at a time. So they have no concept of the TP, the, the stream nature of TCP. Traffic is valid from a stream point of view, might not uh, adhere to a, a packet point of view and confuse security devices like firewalls. Typical stateful inspection firewalls generally have 100 or more rules for opening ports dynamically. These, uh, these types of ports are open dynamic for applications like DNS responses, uh, FTP responses, VoIP, and things like that. Because these rules have to be done in an applied nature, there's lots of opportunities to confuse the firewall. So IDS, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, is Intrusion Detection System. Passive tool that watches the network but does not interfere. It generally runs out of line and is an older type of technology, as it cannot actually stop an attack, but more can only inform you that you have been attacked. This is equivalent to a car alarm or a house alarm that although will inform you that there is an intruder, can actually do nothing about it. IPS is an evolution of IDS. Uh, by evolution, I mean it now sits in line, it filters packets uh, on the fly, and it actually can detect and stop attacks as they happen. A lot of uh, security tools claim to offer a application layer protection, but actually what they're just doing is searching for patterns and payloads. And much like firewalls, the, the, the inspection is done on a packet level basis instead of a stream level basis. So it's very hard for them to emulate and understand what an application, uh, what the application layer is doing. As they can only see one bit of it at a time. Um, we're using Snort as an example here because Snort is open source and free and you can look at the source code, you can contribute to the source code and you can write your own rules.
so one of the, one of the reasons why I am not a large fan of snort is is its inability to detect current and modern attacks. Examples of this are how the rules are written using a content and a depth tag uh, within packets and uh, distance of packets. So this has been set up to only examine on a packet-by-packet -packet basis. So if it's possible to modify the normal behavior of how an, uh, an application or protocol works, most of the uh, most of the offsets that are in here will be uh, incorrect. For instance, this is looking for a null byte at a certain depth. Many protocols allow certain different types of padding, and by adding that type of padding, um, you can actually change what the offsets are inside a single packet. Uh, Snort rules will trigger on the depth and offset. Instead of doing a live demonstration, I'm going to show you a packet capture of the MS03026 vulnerability. The concept is the same as the MS03026 vulnerability with a complex vulnerability attacking the RPC service. So this is the packet capture of a custom-written exploit developed by myself to take advantage of the MSRPC um, ability to do different things like fragmentation and chunking. So if you're familiar with uh, uh, Ether, I apologize, but I have to cover the basic uh, use for the, uh, the INSS now. Etherwheel is a protocol sniffer, is a, is a network sniffer that will do a protocol analysis and breakdown. So the first part of the connection is the SIN, uh, is, a, is a traditional three-way handshake. And it, at line four, it begins a DCE RPC request. And if you look at the protocol, you'll see that unlike most packets, I'm actually doing two different binds. I do two binds because most security tools uh, that do pseudo uh, protocol parsing will look for the first bind in a packet for a certain GUID. If it does not find it in the first bind, it will simply stop looking in the packet. So in this packet, the first bind, I am binding, uh, binding to a harmless UID. 
second context study is the uh, dangerous or vulnerable uh, good that um, we're actually attacking. So this is the first line. The second, the second line back is actually a uh, connection response saying that I was able to bind to those uh, successfully. The third, uh, and actually it's, you'll see it listed here, it's eight times uh, DCE RPC, meaning that this is a virtual representation of eight different packets. So if we drill down into the packets, you'll see there's actually several different uh, fragments in here that Ethereal has politely reassembled for us. So by spreading this information across multiple packets, uh, what I've done is mask a RPC call to something called Ultra Context, which will actually change the GUID I'm currently bound to to the bad GUID. By doing this, I have spread that GUID across many different packets. So a typical RPC uh, bind that was normally 2 to 2,500 bytes has been fragmented down to a simple 90 byte per packet. By doing this, the pattern matching and, and uh, mock protocol analysis tools do not have the ability uh, to search across the packet boundaries to find the and spread across multiple packets. So basically, this is the uh, this is the response uh, from that, and actually, the command line for this exploit. Uh, this the the uh, connection here, which is the attack box responding to the HTTP port, is my shell actually coming? Uh, is the uh, infected, the shell infected machine connecting back to me? And the reset is the, um, the, 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 the sequence ending. So by taking a simple uh, publicly bubble exploit and slightly modifying it, it's trivial at this point to get the uh, MS-03026 attack past uh, the majority of security tools. This is particularly bad because the MS-03026 vulnerability, as you may or may not know, was the basis of the blaster exploit and should actually be the most widely covered exploit in the industry. One of the 
reasons this is possible are the designers of security tools are leaving several assumptions out of um, their design. Fragmentation happens at all layers in the protocol. Packets can be fragmented at the IP layer. Uh, TCP can be fragmented um, into streams or to segments. It, it's easy to fragment main pipes uh, by, by doing an F write with a single byte at a time or, or something similar. And SRPC can be fragmented um, at the PDE level. So the reason these evasions are possible are people are not taking the uh, all of these fragmentation uh, abilities into account when designing tools. Zotob uh, runs over MSRPC, over name clients, over SMB, over NetBIOS, over TCP, over IP. So that's a different layers uh, that all it runs over. So if we wanted to modify, for instance, the House of Davis, publicly available exploit. Instead of being at the uh, TCP layer, it's possible to open a no session to a remote machine. They use common Win32 APIs like create file and uh, write file uh, to do very small writes over the, the, the uh, name, uh, name pipe connection. So by writing one byte at a time into a single packet at a time, a typical snort rules that are designed to work for a depth and offset inside a packet for an attack pattern are now uh, susceptible to being evaded. Um, after the Zotob exploit happened, A full 11% of the snort rule set was dedicated to capturing Zotob 1 and its variants. This was done because snort did not have a advanced enough ability to detect uh, these the, the application layer attacks and rather uh, had to rely on simple pattern matching. By relying on simple pattern matching, they had to write uh, main rules to cover all aspects of the payloads in the packet. These are examples of many different uh, SMB type commands that Snort has to implement on a rule by rule basis to understand. So, in parsing this matching, protocol parsing will actually make sense of the TCP stream, much like Ethereum did uh, when I was showing the demo. Um,
Snort does have an HTTP URL parser, so it's easier for Snort to catch, for instance, an attack based on URL. And it does, uh, Snort does not have an MS uh, DC RPC parser, so it's harder for it to catch uh, different combinations of attacks. So due to the design of the host, many things that are not taken into account for will still be parsed and viewed as valid traffic. The examples of this are uh, changing the byte order of packets, uh, inserting Unicode traffic, and uh, mixing the big Indian little Indian architectures. So, in addition to the evasions I've showed you, there's already um, tools that have a lot of these types of techniques built in and are actually being used uh, in the wild. Tools like this in include Metasploit, uh, an open source project, Canvas created by Immunity Set, and Impact created by Core. Since most of these tools look for simple pattern matching abilities, a lot of shellcode gets reused between different exploits. One of the simplest ways to evade a security tool is to write your own uh, shellcode. This might not evade all security tools, but it's a good start. In addition, uh, they may actually use a polymorphic shellcode or shellcode that will change itself as it runs. Obfuscating the, uh, the, the, the true intent of the shellcode. So another thing that a lot of uh, security tools do is they search for the execution of cmd.exe or the banner the banner that actually gets uh, created when uh, cmd.exe is run they look for that pattern going over a wire by just adding a simple option that's not an option. Uh, you see it doesn't create the, uh, the same banner. Um, there's also the fragmentation angle we talked about a lot. And there's also obfuscation. Obfuscation can be anything from taking a uh, attack that happens over, for instance, email on port 25, and changing the encoding type, or uh, actually inserting uh, characters into the packet that will get stripped out by the parser on the receiving end. Basically, if you want to learn how to evade security tools, the best way to do it is to actually spend time reading the protocol and understanding how an application will accept it.
so now we're going to talk about the, the, the HOSA aspect a little bit. Uh, host based IPS are tools that generally will run on a, a specific computer. We'll have the network and uh, we'll bring the network capabilities of a network IPS and also the firewalling capabilities of a firewall and uh, make it run on a single host. We generally have uh, several other different types of technologies including file protection, generic buffer overflow protection, shell code execution prevention, and uh, blacklisting whitelisting specific processes. So generic buffer overflow detection is a bit of a misnomer because you don't actually detect the buffer overflow. You instead focus on the execution of the payload and what the attacker will try to do, which is most commonly uh, gain privilege escalation. Uh, detection can be done uh, by a variety of different methods. The most popular is called API hooking. So in order to do API hooking, you'll find a function that's most commonly used, like uh, connect, for instance, and you'll overwrite the beginning of the uh, function, which is called a function prologue, with a static jump into a runtime analysis engine. This runtime analysis engine's job is to determine whether the call that was just made to that function is valid or not. It does this via a variety of different methods by looking at whether the memory error area that's been called from is uh, writable or not. There's also a stack backtrace method, which means you'll use stack frames and trace back as far as possible to verify the execution chain of that function. Generally, by exploiting a buffer overflow, you have either corrupted parts of the stack or enough of the heap where this uh, execution chain is no longer valid. There's also a variety of different uh, lesser known methods like sandboxing executions before they uh, sandboxing instructions before they execute. The goal of this type of protection method is to execute the uh, instruction in a safe environment first. Note the uh, quotation fingers. A safe environment first before actually allowing it to run. This method has several problems as the ability to determine whether the command or the, uh, the operation will actually be bad it has yet to be determined. So most tools like this will look for a change in like, a re the return address of a function. In examples like the UPnP worm and uh, the MS-03026 vulnerability, it's possible to gain execution in different methods than just overriding a, a simple return address. In fact, the heap overflows, you don't actually corrupt the return address. 
say what you can do is corrupt a, a function pointer uh, within that context, and the next time that function pointer is used, you will actually cause execution. So sandboxes that will place a cookie before and after a, uh, a function is called to determine if uh, something's been overwritten will be evaded by overwriting a function pointer. So processors have different privilege levels, and ring zero is the lowest privilege level, which gives you access to basically all of the, the, the memory space. Ring three is a uh, lesser uh, privilege level, which will only give you the ability to modify and view uh, your currently uh, certain memory, not all of the memory uh, that's currently running. So the reason why protection in ring three is a bad idea is if I were attempting to stop these gentlemen from crossing the bridge, now would be a bad time to stop them because they've already crossed the bridge. Um, so once you're running your protection in ring three, it's pretty trivial for an attacker to get initial execution and then modify your protection schemes. So the uh, how this is how a, a buffer overflow is caught. An attacker will send an exploit, like the MSO3026 or the UPnP vulnerability. Uh, once the, the, the payload makes a monitored uh, function call, a hook is tripped, a jump is done to a runtime analysis engine. The runtime analysis engine makes a determination based on details like where the call is being made uh, as to the, the, the validity of the call. Things like writable and executable memory pages are bad because that means it's, it's possible for somebody to copy shellcode into that page and execute at that page. Also, the stack backtrace I mentioned before is another method uh, the runtime analysis engine can use to verify the call. If the analysis engine determines a function is bad, it can terminate a request by doing an immediate ret or leaving the function. So what is API hooking? So in the SASS architecture, generally you have what's called a function prologue at the beginning of a function, and this is what it looks like in assembly. You're saving the uh, frame pointer off onto the stack, and then you're replacing the frame pointer with the current stack pointer, thus creating a new frame pointer. So that's what the function prologue looks like in assembly. And after a function is hooked, it looks something like this, which will be an uh, explicit jump into an address. So that was how the uh, the heap the the, the uh, stack backtracing and API uh, hooking would uh, catch an event. The sandboxing will virtualize the instruction, meaning that it's allowed to run into a virtual environment first. And there's several canaries or static values that are put around different mechanisms like a heap in the stack to determine if the calling operation has corrupted either one of these. If 
the virtualized instruction runs does indeed corrupt something, that instruction will not be allowed to run, thus causing the application to, uh, to crash most likely. Which actually brings me to an interesting point. It's not on my slides, but it's something you should actually look for when uh, testing uh, host-based and network-based IPSs, is gaps in protection. For instance, uh, every host-based IPS I currently know of has the ability uh, to, to, uh, to, for instance, detect the Zotob exploit from uh, running. Where the problem comes in is by stopping it, it actually causes an important service to crash in Windows. And by causing that important service to crash, the entire machine will then reboot. Now, if you look at how the protection is implemented uh, in the Hostbase IPS during the startup, you have a gap in window of 20 to 30 seconds before the protection actually starts. So, a attacker scenario for this is you could send an exploit you know that will be caught uh, and thus cause a reboot. And then as the machine is rebooting, flood the machine with, uh, with your attack packets. As soon as the machine can receive and parse, uh, process information, more than likely the host base IPS has not yet started. And this provides the attacker an ability to evade uh, most any uh, host base IPS. This is called a double pump attack. So this is a, a brief description of how a sandbox works. Basically, it, you should think of it as a small inline execution engine. The problem with the sandbox in general is that while executing, you're going to be impacting performance on the host as well. So one of the one of the key uh, points of a security tool is it's supposed to keep you safe while still allowing you to perform your your job. Uh, it's possible to build uh, several uh, memory instructions, for instance, in shellcode, that will cause infinite loops within these virtual machines. By causing infinite loops in these virtual machines, you're, you are essentially using all the resources this machine has to offer. So although an attacker has not gained execution, they have effectively uh, implemented a denial of service attack against your machine. Okay, so API hooking, evasions, uh, not really anything new. There's an excellent article by Jenny Butler, who was actually speaking here yesterday, uh, in fact, on how to do it. It's a uh, pretty, pretty in-depth article, but basically the entire gist of the article is since the hook's in user land, why do you need to uh, execute the hook? Since you're in user land, and not in a kernel space, you have the ability to uh, redirect flow of execution. So you can choose not to execute the hook. 
there's two ways to do this. The first way is that you execute the function prolog in your shell code, then jump into the function you're calling in a certain number of bytes. The second uh, less known method is that you have uh, you build shell code that does uh, the syscalls directly. By doing syscall directly, you're actually making your shell code somewhat larger. For the majority of exploits that I've seen and worked on and developed, uh, especially in the UPnP space, uh, and for instance, I, the, the, I, I recently released a, an exploit in the Cisco call manager that was also a heap-based uh, overflow uh, that was actually protected by a, a host-based RPS. Uh, you, we had several uh, thousand bytes to work with, so increasing uh, your shellcode payload a couple hundred bytes to include an invasion mechanism is not really uh, impacting your ability to uh, exploit the host. So this is the actual RPC exploit. And this is a shell code, which probably doesn't mean much to you uh, because it's uh, it's in hex. But I'm going to be extremely nice to you and show you something that people don't normally get to see. This is the assembly for the shell code that the X-Force uses uh, for development. We generally don't show this to too many people. But I'm going to show you something, and after looking at the site of the function prologue, you'll be able to tell very quickly why this is special shell code. So, for instance, we see uh, in the shell code that we're doing a function prolog call right there. So, by doing this function prolog in our shell code, we have efficiently been able to evade a hook uh, that most hook, uh, API hooking uh, hits would, would stop. So we'll do a, a function prolog to jump into a, a function a certain number of bytes, depending on how many bytes we execute uh, before we jump. Uh, for instance, uh, this particular one, since ECX is containing the pointer to the function we want to jump into, we're adding 7 to it. So after executing uh, the function prolog in this code, we're going to jump seven bytes into uh, whatever function we were calling. There's also another vector of this. Uh, when we were originally developing x to do this, uh, it, how to do this wasn't public knowledge yet. Then the SSL PCT vulnerability became public, uh, which ISS X-Force actually found and developed. A group called THC actually released a proof of concept code that we then tested and evaded the majority of uh, host space security tools. And we were all worried when this happened because we thought our super secret method of doing this had been leaked out or something. But what we actually determined then by looking at uh, the, the shellcode in the exploit 
they weren't actually doing explicitly any evasions. So uh, OSPACE IPS functions work uh, by hooking certain functions. And in operating systems like Windows, there's many different functions that do the same job. Uh, for instance, there's uh, for, for most functions in Windows, there's, uh, uh, there's functions that end in A, which means ASCII, or W, which stands for wide. So most of the host space IPS at the time had been designed just to stop the ASCII versions of these functions from being called. Since the, uh, the exploit had actually been developed in Europe, the shell code was designed to take advantage of Unicode versions of these functions. So when the, um, when the exploit would run, they would just call a Unicode version of the functions, which weren't hooked, and thus getting execution. So this is a problem with uh, traditional uh, function hooking uh, APIs. Uh, simply because you have to make sure you cover all the angles. And when people like Microsoft add new functionality in new updates, these vendors have to go back, look at how the, uh, the, the critical functions have changed, uh, where they've changed in memory, and adaptive protection to match that. And this takes time. Uh, most IPS vendors won't release, you know, a patch uh, the same day as a major update to something like Windows. So this means that although you may be protected by a host-based IPS, you have a gap in protection. Gap in protection is bad. Is that right, Dan? So this is a shell code, and this is basically how we do it. As you can see. Um, the, really the only thing you need to modify is adding the function prologue a couple other steps in the jump to your existing shellcode. So the shellcode in the Metasploit project, which you can get for now for free, already does this. So by doing this, my shellcode grew from 516 bytes to 538 bytes. That's not a significant difference. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the embedded hooks. This is like the process flow I was just talking about. So me as a programmer, I shouldn't do that again. For me as a programmer, when I'm writing code, I call create process. So that's because Microsoft has been nice to me, and they've hidden the really complex functions deep down in DRL somewhere. So although I call create process with the function with, with the arguments I want. So a query process is nothing actually more than a wrapper for query process A, which will determine uh, the correct arguments it needs to, uh, it needs to pass to query process A. And in turn, is a wrapper for create process internal A, which determines the, create, uh, the correct uh, options to pass. So most, most of the HIPS vendors have gotten smart and said, well, if you're going to jump over the hook here, uh, this function in turn will then call this function. So if I want to catch you, I'll just hook this function and not worry about that function and this function. 
These are called embedded hooks. Uh, so, basically, we're going to go back to the thing that you're running in user land. And since you're running in user land, you have no real need to execute these hooks. In fact, you can make a call to a function called virtual protect. You can change the, the, the permissions on a memory page and actually in memory modify the running process by removing the hooks. You can, over, you can, you can write the original function prologue back in just removing the hooks altogether. So here's the thing, and we talked a little bit about why sandboxes are bad. Uh, they do the virtualized instructions and whatnot. One thing that sandboxes don't take into account is what if the instruction is designed to corrupt the running sandbox? So if an attacker has prior knowledge uh, that a host is running this type of tool, they can make sure that the shellcode contains an instruction that, when virtualized, will actually corrupt the, that running process. By doing this, you can actually get the, 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 the sandbox to execute almost any instruction you want. That's kind of even removing the need for, uh, for privilege escalation. So there's one particular vendor that uses uh, all three of these uh, all three of these protection mechanisms. And although it's, it, it's harder than exporting a machine with no protection, chaining the methods I've described together uh, is a simple way of, uh, of exporting them all. Any questions so far? So here's the funny thing about host space IPSs. The vendors try to um, determine how the behavior on the host will happen without doing a lot of really in-depth research into it. So I, I had the privilege, due to uh, Mr. Dankaminsky, of having a, a report brought to me that said that a screensaver that was uh, made available uh, on the USA Network's website was actually a keystroke logger. It was actually a piece of malware that was logging everything you attached to your computer and saying to a third-party source. This determination was made because a person was actually running a uh, host-based IPS, and the host-based IPS told them that it was a, was a Trojan. So here's the thing, it actually wasn't. Uh, after doing in-depth reverse engineering on the actual uh, on the actual uh, screensaver, what we determined it was doing was hooking certain uh, certain keyboard and mouse events to determine when somebody types a key and moves a mouse. 
the vendor that made this whole space security product made a determination that the only kind of uh, software that would do that is malicious software. So any software that had that type of behavior, they would automatically mark as malware. So this is uh, th this is one more example of why the uh, the host place IPS um, should be tested very carefully. And this is actually uh, just a slide that's mostly talking about why uh, why that type of behavior uh, happened. So things to check while testing. It's hard to test personal firewalls uh, on hosts uh, correctly. Because in addition to the firewall testing, you need to take into account what the application you're testing actually tries to do, and if the firewall is designed to open ports dynamically for certain types of applications. And since the, the software actually runs on the host and is not on a separate network machine, the performance of this is very important. For instance, if a personal firewall is, uh, is using all the cycles on your machine, thus not enabling you to do your job, that's not a very good product and more than likely will be removed. So in the ability to, uh, to, to stay current or to, uh, to process traffic as fast as possible, some shortcuts in personal firewalls are taken. For instance, the only type of traffic that should have a source port of 53 is DNS traffic. And DNS traffic is pretty safe. So a lot of personal firewalls will just allow anything with a, with a source port of 53 through automatically without checking any of the other rules. Last year, Symantec released a vulnerability and there was actually a buffer overflow in a device driver of the personal firewall. And the firewall actually was useless in protecting against this vulnerability because it was determined at that point if you were to build a pack, your attack packet with a source port of 53, it would automatically be parsed and thus through the firewall. So then there's the IPS engine. So you should you should definitely look at where the IPS engine hooks. We talked about a ring zero and ring three. There's pro and cons for both architecture. Ring zero, for instance, hooks in, in kernel space. It's much harder to modify, but it's still available. Evasion of a ring zero hook at this point would rely on building custom stack frames or a simple return to, return to libc attacks. The pros uh, for that type of detection is it's much harder to actually stop. Uh, so then there's a ring three protection, which we talked about. Since you are running with the same privilege as an exploit, it's easy for the exploit to modify your protection mechanism. That's one of the cons, that's not a pro. 
the pros are it, you, you get better execution speed out of hooking in ring three. Uh, so then we actually also talked about the gap in coverage uh, with the reboot. So now there's um, application protection as well that are built into uh, Hostbase IPS. Uh, several, several vendors recently, well actually not several, Intel and AMD, actually release a, a new technology called NX. NX stands for no execute, which is actually a bit uh, in the page table entry in virtual memory that's designed to stop uh, executable and write memory from allowing an exploit to be in control. So I did a speech earlier this year at the Black Hat conference in Las Vegas. It was all about the different ways you could do bad things and subvert uh, this protection mechanism. And one of the ways that we found uh, while looking at this is that a, um, a program called a loader is what actually loads the, the application from the disk into memory, sets up the memory properly, and starts execution for it. The NX protection is also part of this, as you have to mark the pages in memory properly for it to be adhered to. If you don't mark the pages properly, it's as if you didn't have any protection at all. So that brings us to uh, the Windows loader. In fact, the Windows, Windows doesn't have one loader. It has many loaders. It has a specific loader for MS dot and bat files, a specific loader for Win16, a specific POSIX loader, and a specific OS2 loader. These loaders have not been made aware uh, that, that the NX bit even exists. So properly marking the pages is not possible. So keep this in mind when the application protection uh, portion of the HIPS is being looked at. It's pretty easy to, mark, to, to create a specific type of file that looks like uh, either one, one of these four types of files that do not know how to mark like the NX protection properly. And during the execution, you now have no protection. There are some operating systems that actually even the annex uh, protection is not extended to uh, the children processes. It's just a parent process. So the other problem is, so if you're running in ring three, uh, which is, you know, I have the ability to modify processes but not kernel space. Some application protection mechanisms don't take into account the fact that I can inject code into a running process and have that executed without requiring a buffer overflow. So there's, there's a myriad of different ways that you should take a look at uh, how this is being done. So that's the uh, end of my, my actual talk.
And now we'll do the uh, the Q and A. Questions, comments, suggestions, funny stories. Somebody have a good story about the punky? Yes. So, how do you evaluate the application layer based on firewall? Say again? Um, how do you evaluate application layer based on firewall, like a release of from a Symantec and CyberGuard? I'm sorry, I can I can understand you. Um, you said that firewall is uh, just a um, packet-based inspection. Yes. yes. But uh, some vendors claims it is an application layer, I mean, application-aware firewall, like a semantic and cyberguard. Yes. How do you evaluate their products? Uh, the, viral, the, 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 the product validation, uh, and that's actually what the entire point of this, uh, this presentation is, is about, is that um, you should be testing this specifically yourself. So if they say that it, they're an application uh, protection firewall, find an application that your, your, your corporation uses. Most people use uh, DC RPC services like file and print sharing. So then write something that exercises uh, the protocol uh, specifically, that, uh, like exercising uh, less used functions inside that protocol, like the, the chunking and fragmentation. The, uh, it's not possible to do specifically out of order send with the fragmentation, but there's a, there's a way you can build uh, IP packets yes. and then put, uh, send the IP packets out of order and let the host assemble it on the, uh, the far side. Okay. And basically what you're looking for is you're looking for any little thing mm -hmm. that... Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> any little, little thing that... Um, the um, they, they can uh, you test to actually exercise the protocol mm -hmm. because if they actually are an application le le level protocol, things like I've mentioned will be caught by them. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I got to. Hey, Dan. You said there were uh, over a hundred rules on most corporate firewalls that will dynamically open ports. Um, have there been systematic investigations into abusing these services for, uh, say, NAT penetration? Yes. In general, can, in general, is there at least one NAT penetration hole available on every firewall? Uh, I am aware. Uh, of s several popular firewalls uh, from Israel uh, that has uh, several several flaws in, in that uh, because it, it's hard at the firewall level to do FTP correctly because FTP is a very dynamic sort of thing. It's hard to do uh, VoIP uh, correctly because VoIP is a um, very dynamic application. So in order to do this, the firewalls will look at the outgoing traffic and make determinations that traffic coming in that matches a certain set of uh, that matches a certain set of parameters should be part of that flow. So for VoIP specifically, uh, it's it's easy to get them to open rules for you or a porch for you that uh, they they shouldn't be open. On a different note, have you examined uh, OpenBSD's PF firewall? And if so, what do you think of their packet scrubbing? Their packet structure is, 
OpenBSD in general has a has very good code quality. They spend a lot of time uh, developing and uh, testing uh, that code. Um, one of the things that I have found about the PF, about the PF firewall is that it uh, it's still a packet-based firewall. That uh, in order to really stop some of the attacks that are happening, uh, you need to be more of a stream layer. To be fair, however, OpenBSD really doesn't have the sort of attack vectors uh, that that's generally uh, required for. Are you aware of any uh, firewalls that do complete, that basically act as a TCP endpoint and terminate all streams at themselves? Well, isn't that the idea of a application proxy firewall? Except it actually operates for arbitrary ports to arbitrary backend destinations. Right. So the closest that I have seen anyone get is an application gateway firewall. I am currently not familiar of with anybody that, that can do the complete separation. Any other questions? Yes, sir. えっとですね、え、パケットレベルで、え、見るよりもストリーム、もしくはアプリケーションのレイヤーで見るというのがいいと。ですね、ノートではそれができてないというのがあったんですけども、これをですね、IE制スのプロベンティアとかは、どのように
Then I'm just gonna keep hitting you. Are you aware if there are any uh, if there's any documentation of minimum requirements or is there a list anywhere of requirements for for a uh, for a hips for hip software? You know, effective hip software should block, and then here's a list. No, I'm actually I haven't found uh, I haven't found that information yet. That information generally comes from vendors, and I have found uh, before I worked for a vendor, I worked I was a customer. I found that when I was being approached by these vendors, they all had their own individual list for this, and it, it specifically highlighted their products, and there was nothing uh, more generic. Uh, so it was hard to to actually determine what was really important and what not. And there's still not, as far as I know, a independent um, list of what a, a good uh, security tool should be able to do. Are vendors always honest? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they're not. <laughs> Uh, vendor honesty is a very, uh, is a very strange thing. The presentation I just gave is actually being turned into a book for Addison Wesley. And the purpose of this book is that as a vendor, I'm never going to tell a customer, trust me, this works. As a vendor, I'm going to give you uh, my product to test, and I'm, I'm, I want you to test it as thoroughly as possible, because as a vendor, I believe my product is best. And I'm sure every vendor feels like that. So, um, yeah, they all are. Any other questions? Thank you for attending my talk.